So they say that um, practice is to support us in difficult circumstances, i.e. life, i.e. the unexpected, the uncertain. So I had lots of opportunity to practice that when I traveling here, finding out about the storm rather late notice. <laughs> I don't really watch TV, so I, you know, I tracked the news somewhat randomly, so it was a bit of a surprise to hear there was a bit of snow happening in Boston. Um, but I quickly grabbed a flight to DC, thinking that would be, at least I got to the East Coast, and then I would just drive up, you know, catch the train or something, or get a plane. Or Little did I know there was a, quite a storm that you had and um, so various negotiations with United Airlines and Amtrak and various other modes of transport to get me here was quite a drama, kind of, um, kind of amusing, amusing now, <laughs> <laughs> more tedious in, in, the, in the actual experience of lots of waiting around. Um, but you know, it's it's just so it's just that's life. You know, it was so interesting to watch whether I suffered around it or not, depending on whether I resisted. So, you know, I sort of surrendered to not getting to Boston, getting to DC, and I was fine with that. And I had a plane the next day, and I was like, well, you know, it's it's either one place or another. You know, it's a bed or here or there. And I was disappointed in getting to the retreat late, but it's like, well, what do you do? You surrender to you know, bigger circumstances. and But then I, when I got to D.C., I found out the flight had been canceled, and I was not as happy, or as equanimous as I had been. <laughs> and then just watched my mind go through the ebbs and the flows. And, uh, you know, when, when there was mm, self-awareness, self-possession, uh, and balance, then whatever happened was okay, you know. And, and what I, one of the ways that I track that is how I relate to people. So, um, how I how I relate to the person on the other end of the phone at United Airlines telling me yet again another flight's been delayed or cancelled, and just tracking my response: Can I stay present? Can I not be reactive? Can I? Be kind that this person is probably she's probably I'm probably the 500th person that day that she's told your flight has been cancelled. Can I remember this as a human being who is trying to be happy and do their job well? And so this is why we practice. And sometimes being here, it can seem somewhat removed from our life. What has this got to do with? the challenges in my office, or the conflicts with my family, or um, you know, the various challenges we have in life with health, with loss, with particularly the relational difficulties. And hopefully as, you, as, you, as we deepen in the retreat and the practice, you'll see that this has everything to bear on how we relate to each other primarily from how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to the moment-to-moment experience, whether it's with acceptance or kindness or reactivity, 
or love or hatred. This is a Zen cartoon. There's a bunch of monks sitting in the Zendo, all happily meditating, except one who's on his cell phone. And he's calling somebody and saying, none of this seems to be doing me any good whatsoever. (laughs) So that's why we ask you not to use your cell phones. You can't relay such messages. So, what interests me about these practices are the, their coming together, the fusion of the practices of mindfulness and metta and compassion, that they ultimately become a way of being in life, with ourselves, with each other, how we move through the world, that we move through the world with awareness, with wisdom, with kindness, with compassion, with understanding of our connection. And at the same time, we, we can cultivate each of these different practices to bring them to their f- fullness, but ultimately they become one orientation to life, one attitude to life, that we meet life, we meet ourselves, with a kind attention or a compassionate awareness. So I have a very fond memory of being at IMS um, in doing a lot of retreats in the 90s uh, when it was not quite as renovated and as polished as it looks now. And um, especially in the kitchen, it was before the kitchen renovation. And uh, those of you who remember who used to practice late at night would know that you were practicing with many other sentient beings Uh, mostly cockroaches. (laughs) And I used to think that they were the most loved cockroaches (laughs) on the planet. Everyone's tiptoeing mindfully, so none of them gets stepped on. Everyone's wishing loving kindness, even to the cockroaches, and no one's getting their shoes out and whacking them. So these qualities come together as we meet life as we meet experience. So I want to read a story from that speaks to this. It's from an organization that I'm in connection with called servicespace.org, which is a wonderful organization developed by a friend of mine that's based around generosity. And they put out amazing stories of human kindness and connection. So this is a story of a woman who uh, goes to her laundrette regularly. And one day she comes upon an older woman who's uh, sitting in a corner of the laundrette facing the machines and appears to be mumbling. And um, she's apparently a regular at the laundrette and people have gotten used to her mumbling to herself in the corner and people give her somewhat of a wide berth, not sure exactly what's going on with her. So this particular woman happened to sit next to her one day and uh, was listening to her mumbling. And then this lady, this old lady, uh, smiled and she handed her a card. And on the card it said, "I'm I'm a simple woman 
and many find me odd. I have not spoken to others since my son died in the war. Thank you for sitting beside me as I pray for him. As I read the card, tears welled in my eyes, and this fragile woman reached out her hand and placed it on mine. I realized that her mumblings were prayers and her lack of contact with even a smile was due to her sense of hopelessness. How sad she must be to live in a world where she was shunned because she seemed different. So, and then this woman started to go regularly and daily, in fact, to the laundrette to sit with this woman uh, while she prayed as a kind of a silent show of support. And then uh, suddenly, and this happened, went on for a long time, and then suddenly the old lady stopped coming to laundrette. But this woman continued to go, hoping that she would come back, and she never did. But one day, uh, a younger woman showed up and uh, looking uh, for somebody and uh, set eyes on this woman and realized that was the person. And um, they began to talk and uh, this younger woman was the, younger, was, was the older woman's daughter. And um, she began telling her about her mother and what she did. She was a, a big... Uh, uh, person in the community in terms of her service and generosity and outreach work. Um, and she, and this woman, Alice, uh, the daughter, told this woman that um, the reason the old lady would come to the laundrette was to, uh, because that's where her son uh, washed his clothes when he was in, in service before he went off to war. And so it all started to make sense with, to her. And then Alice, uh, the, the old woman's daughter, gave her a card, and on it, the card, this was the, what was written from the old lady. In the beginning, when I came to this place, I came in sorrow. I sat and remembered my boy and prayed. People cast glances my way and acted as if I was somehow a bit crazy. I sat in the same place and talked with my son and prayed that he would know I loved him and still loved him and was so proud to be his mum. Then one day you walked in and sat beside me. As time went by, you continued to come and my prayers became your prayers. I wondered how you can understand an old fool like me, let alone decipher what I was saying. Somehow you understood. In this life, I tried to be good, to be someone who others look up to and feel that my intentions were always to assist, never judge or harm. I raised my son that way. He was such a good man and my children so thoughtful and kind. If you're reading this now, you must have met my daughter, Alice. She's a grand lady, but thinks I'm losing my mind. At one point, I also believed that. And then I met you. You asked me for nothing and gave me something I will carry with me until I leave this earth. You gave me acceptance and respect and treated me with a gentle regard for the person I was. What you may not have realized was that coming here became a a time I truly look forward to. I look forward to meeting you, dear lady, and never even knew your name. Your presence and acceptance of what seemed like oddities meant so much to me. No one has ever been so kind without expecting something in return. I was always happy to give, but you gave me a gift that is priceless, the gift of acceptance and time spent with an old lady that everyone decided was sick. I will forever be in your debt and you will forever be in my heart. So I find that uh, story a beautiful expression of metta, beautiful expression of this union of what in this case was simple presence, was just showing up, being attentive, 
accepting this person for who she was and being there with kind of with an open heart and that and and what i love about this story is how powerful that is that we can bring this presence this mindful kind attention to others to ourselves and it can be truly transformative So one thing I think that's important to remember with practice, if you haven't gotten this already, as I'm, but I'm sure you have, it's not linear. We like to think we start somewhere on the path and then whatever metaphor you use, whether it's climbing the mountain or going through difficult terrain, the, 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 the mythology in the, in, the, in the culture around spiritual practice generally is we climb up the mountain and it gets easier and easier and clearer and clearer and brighter and brighter and happier and happier and we live happily ever after at some point, right? That's, that's kind of the mythology, right? To a, to a large degree. And that may be true for some of you. And if it is, great. <laughs> Where I think the, the, the analogy breaks down is that we have a lot of control over how we are in ourselves and how we respond to life, but we don't have control over the circumstances. So our circumstances do not certainly get easier and easier and easier. In fact, usually they get harder as we get older, as we lose loved ones, as we get sick, as we age. Right? But the practice is giving us resources how to, to, how to deal with those more effectively, more skillfully, more kindly, with more compassion, with more acceptance. So as I said earlier, the essence of the the, the practice of metta is this quality of heart that expects nothing in return, that's boundless in its potential but in actuality, it's very specific. It's how we meet this moment, this body, this Dharma talk, this feeling of loss or joy or interest or pain or despair or hope. So for me on the journey here was how I dealt with the person at Amtrak or the person on customer service. So I was teaching a class. I run this course called Essential Dharma. It's a year-long course in foundational Buddhist teachings. And uh, a student was talking about how she was uh, dealing with her teenage son. And they were having an argument. And he stormed out and went for a walk. And she got really furious that he did that. Um, And... uh, and then, and, then and, and, and shouted after him, well, if you're going to take a walk, at least take the dog. And by that time, he'd already gone. So she decided to take herself for a walk and take the dog. So she did that. And on the walk, she realized how, and they were both really heated, and she realized as she took the walk, she started to calm down. 
and, and then realize what he, actually, what he did was actually a really wise thing, is he removed himself from the conflictual situation, went out in nature, took a walk, and came back and was more grounded, and she was also more grounded. So the, the moment he left the door, she was, think, she was planning to tell him as soon as he got back that he was grounded, all his privileges were lost, and that was, and he was going to be punished. But she, she, she so with some awareness and some mindfulness, she was able to restrain herself, took herself on the walk, and then they had a, a, a much more balanced conversation when he came back and asked, how can we do this differently? So the, the practice moves in the specificity of our experience, of our relationships. So here you are in retreat, and of, I don't know how many, there are about 90 people or so, and there's 90 different experiences of this retreat. Some of you are having a wonderful time, some of you are having a difficult time, some of you are wishing the blizzard was still happening and you're still at home, um, some of you are looking forward to the end, some of you want to move in. It's a whole range of experience, and you might move between all those different positions in the course of a single day. So for some of you have talked about how there's, there's a lot of joy and ease in the practice and that there's access to this quality of metta and, uh, and delight. And I think and, and why that is and why someone else is having difficulties is not necessarily always clear. I like to think um, that sometimes the practice is easy because there's, a, there's an affinity for it, or just because we're giving ourselves the opportunity to practice something that's already within us, and we just haven't given ourselves the opportunity to let this quality shine. A friend of mine uh, put together a book. Uh, she interviewed children. Um, from ages 4 to 12, I think, and asked some various questions about God and love and peace and uh, all kinds of things. And so I always love to read these comments from kids, especially the young ones, who um, have a lot of wisdom. And they also speak to what we sense in children and in infants, that the the quality of love um, uh, is often very accessible and present. So this is uh, some quotes. Um, Love is what you do. Love is what is in the room at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you've left him alone all day. When my grandfather got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Oh, I like this one. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. An interesting expression. Safe in your mouth. And then this is from a fourth grader. I'm not rushing into the love thing. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough as it is. <laughs> So there's a range, you know, this safe in your mouth, and uh, I'll take my time on that one. 
And on that theme, I, this is from the far side. So there's Satan in hell, and uh, he's shouting to his mom, no, mom, no, stop that. Despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> She's there with a little tray of cookies and milk and a little devil's pinion. And so it's important to know what allows your heart to open. What kindles this quality of affection, of warmth, of fondness, of empathy, of kindness, of friendliness. And I think it's useful to use different words because we all have different doorways into this quality. We may feel fondness for a plant or affection for a friend or endearment to a loved one. There's different shades of this quality of friendliness. So for some of you, uh, what, e- what most touches you is nature. Whether it's the, the shining, shimmering light on the snow or the stillness of the forest or the beauty of the snowflakes coming down today or the, the, uh, the strength of the trees in winter. And, and several of you have talked about, you know, despite it being freezing out there, the beauty, and that's what allows your heart to open and if that's the case, you know, one of the instructions that I loved when I was practicing metta intensively was to let yourself be drawn to practicing where most enlivens your heart. So I do a lot of my practice outside, not necessarily when it's 10 below, but uh, do my walking practice outside, uh, just to make sure there's some contact with the elements. This is from Mary Oliver, which seems more apropos in the the post-storm, the great nature poet. She writes, have you ever seen anything more beautiful in your life than the way the sun every evening, relaxed and easy, floats towards the horizon into the clouds or the hills or the rumpled sea, and how it slides again out of the blackness every morning on the other side of the world like a red flower? streaming upward on its heavenly oils. Do you think there is anywhere in any language a word billowing enough for such pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out, as it warms you, as you stand there empty-handed? Or have you too turned from this world? Have you too gone crazy for power or for things? So be, be attentive to what, to what touches you in that way. And let it really, really soak that up, really bathe in that while you're here. For many of you, you've talked about the challenges of the practice, whether it's the hindrances that Genus spoke so well about last night, or just the challenge of the initial phase of the practice. There's a certain, mm, there's a certain energy required to do this practice, you know, Often there's a, you know, we, we do the day of mindfulness and then people are eager to get to the meta practice. And then once we get to the meta practice and people realize, oh my God, it's a lot of work. I want to go back to mindfulness practice. I just sit there and be present and don't have to do anything, don't have to say anything, don't have to think about anybody, just be present. 
It seems quite luxurious from the, the, uh, the energy and the effort that's required and, and the concentration that's required. And you can see that it takes a lot of attention even just to say a set of four phrases. That can be challenging if you're in the doldrums of sleepiness or restlessness. And to, and to do those steadily with meaning, with conviction, with genuineness, day, minute after minute, hour after hour, it takes a lot of energy. And there are times when the practice can seem boring, it can seem flat, it can seem dry, it can seem rote, and it can seem, it can seem like you're further away from metta than you ever have been in your life. You think of yourself as a kind, caring person, and somehow... In the practice, you can't generate anything but boredom and resistance. Not unusual. I think it's wise not to make an evaluation on that, based on that, about how loving you are. But it's more just what's happening in the moment in your practice. And even though it seems like nothing's happening, Something is happening. You know, we're, we're laying down very powerful, positive neural pathways that are inclining our mind towards kindness and towards love and towards friendliness and affection rather than negativity, rather than negative self-talk, rather than judging others. We're simply inclining again and again to kindness, to friendliness, to wishing others well, which is a wonderful thing. Even if we don't feel anything and we're so conditioned to evaluate based on feeling. It's not a bad thing to do, evaluate based on feeling, but it's not, it's not a useful criteria in this practice, in this moment. So hang in there, if that's the case for you. If it feels dry, if it feels boring, things will change. You can always take breaks, you can pause, you can just simply shift a mindfulness practice. You can introduce other people into the practice. You can mix it, you can spice it up a little bit. You can stay with people that's easier for you to generate a sense of connection. So the foundation of the practice is, starts at home, starts with our relationship, our orientation to ourselves. The way that we can be with ourselves with kindness or affection or warmth or friendliness. And as we've said, this is not necessarily the easiest place to start. But we need to start here. And really the meta practice, no matter who and how many people we are wishing meta for, ultimately it's about transforming our own heart. Coming into a, a kinder, more accepting relationship to our heart. So I'd like to read this story that some of you have probably heard uh, that speaks to a way of holding ourselves with uh, patience and acceptance. 
A man observes a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in the basket in a shopping cart. As they pass the cookie section, the little girl asks for cookies and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss and the mother said quietly, now Monica, we just have half the eyes left to go through and then don't be upset, it won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle and of course the little girl began to cry, whine and shout for candy and when told she couldn't have any, she began to cry and again the mother said, there, there Monica, don't cry, only two more aisles to go and we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. Thereupon the mother said, patiently, Monica, we'll be through the checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and we can take a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began, whereupon the mother said, what do you mean? My little girl's name's Tammy. I'm Monica. <laughs> so, like many of you, my experience of uh, studying mental practice was um, challenging. Um, I immediately took to it in, in that I knew that it was going to be helpful, but I didn't find it easy. I didn't find it easy because I felt like there was a big iceberg stuck right in the center of my chest. And it was, it was numb, and it was hard, and it was frozen. And, um, but I had, I had an instinctual sense that the practice would be useful. And so I started doing it. And right in the beginning of my practice, as I learned mindfulness practice, I, I learned them together. And, um, and mostly uh, did the, the meta practice for myself for some years, uh, because that's where it was needed. Um, and over time, I could see incremental shifts, that the, the, heart, the heart got slowly less hard, less frozen, start to thaw out. There was a sense of a little more warmth, a little more self-care, a little more self-acceptance. I began to see myself not just through a very negative lens, but I began to see, oh, I could see there were some qualities there that were okay. There were some things I could find that I could like about myself. And so over time, and I'm talking years, not five days, although some big shifts can happen in five days. I don't want to and underestimate that too, but over the years, you know, the, the, it was like eroding, like the sun melting the iceberg. And now I've been doing the practice off and on for thirty years, and I can really look back and see it's had a tremendous transformative effect on the self hatred, on the self rejection, on the judgment, on all kinds of things, and the ability to um, uh, see myself more clearly and more kindly. And of course, I've seen it transform the lives of many, many, many students and clients over the years. And I had a client who um, worked in the sex trade uh, in incredibly um, self-harming uh, work and um, 
she engaged in that work for a long time, and even during we, the time we were working together, and at some point she started the practice, mindfulness practice, meta practice. And at some point, that practice took root enough where she became clear, I can no longer do this work. I can no longer harm my body in this way. I can no longer disrespect myself in this way. And so she eventually gave up the work. So, as you know, the Buddha spoke very clearly about this life and about some of the characteristics of this life. And one of the characteristics he spoke about was that it's unsatisfactory, that it's painful, that there's suffering, there's anguish. And so the practice is one of of learning to look at that, to meet that, to understand that, and to meet it with this kind compassionate attention. And that's true for everybody here. As the phrase goes, um, be kind to every person you meet because everybody has been asked to carry a great burden. Everybody here has a great burden. You might not see it, it might not be obvious, you might not even know you have a great burden, but there's, we don't get through life without carrying burdens, and sometimes many of them. <clears throat> and so our practice is to meet that. So I think of metta as primarily an attitude of heart. It's a quality, but it's an attitude in the way that we turn towards what is. So this is a poem that speaks to this quality of life that is uh, messy. Anybody feel like their life is messy and complicated and difficult and challenging? Yeah, welcome to being human. So I don't know if I can read this without my glasses. Let me give it a go. By Marie Howe. Johnny, so she's writing to her brother who passed away of AIDS when he was 28. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the drainer won't work but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes have piled up, waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky is a deep, headlong, headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat, the heat's on too high in here, and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries on the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along the wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my shirt and sleeve, I thought it again and again later after buying a hairbrush. This is it. Parking, slamming the door shut in the cold. What you called that yearning, what you finally gave up, We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of a corner video store, And I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, my chapped face, an unbuttoned coat, 
that I'm speechless. I am living. I remember you. There are moments when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my blowing hair, my chapped face, and my unbuttoned coat, I am speechless. So this is what happens when we persist with the practice. We perhaps catch ourselves off guard and a little chink, a little crack opens and we feel some fondness or feeling of affection for ourselves or a moment of self-care or compassion for the, the way that we cruel to ourselves or beat ourselves up. So as I said, we start with ourselves. This is where we do the bulk of our work. And from that, we can turn, we can bring that quality to the way that we meet others. This is from Rilke. He says, For one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult of our tasks the ultimate, the last test and proof, the work for which all other work is but preparation. So no easy task, as he's pointing to so clearly. That's why we have such a hard time with human beings. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard to be with ourselves, never mind be with another person and all their desires and idiosyncrasies and So the challenge is, how do we stay open? How do we keep our heart open when it's been challenged and hurt and let down? It takes a lot of courage to keep the heart open. And this courage is part of what gives us uh, strength to look, to turn towards suffering. When the heart this quality of matter meets pain in ourselves or others. It, be, it takes on the flavor of compassion, this caring, quivering, empathic, resonant quality of the heart. But it only comes when we, when we move into what is difficult. the poem. This is something I wrote a couple of years ago. It's called Descent into Love. Who would have known burrowing curiously into my own shadow, stepping deeply into inner crypts that hide secrets, sore memories I've spent a lifetime running from, would be the passage that begins with a crack, a hairline splinter in rock that lets in a ray of light leading me down into the fleshy room of my heart, softening that space that's been vacant for years, filling it with unimaginable sweetness, where hard boundaries separating me for so long from the rigid edges of my world become porous 
and my skin so thin it's dust to feel every impression of this harsh and welcoming life. Here I come to know the other like my own, and that's where it begins. What I've longed for starts moving like the breath, no longer making distinctions between inside and out. And I can't help but feel love for all of it, the pine needles, the disappointments, the senseless bombings, the sound of crickets, children neglected, and the look in my eyes as I walk half asleep into the terrors of this life, touching all of it with the gesture of a friend. So it's the turning towards the difficult, the challenging, which is really what metabolizes and transforms the heart, gives us the fortitude and resilience to meet difficulty in life. It's very hard to be with somebody who's suffering and struggling if we haven't learned to be with that in ourselves. And I've, t- and I've felt so much gratitude for all the descents that I've taken in my life through my practice and just through living because I see how it informs how I am with people and I spend my life working with people, teaching, therapy, and coaching. And what it, it's done is it, it's given a lot of courage because then there's a sense of fearlessness comes when we're not afraid of going to any places in ourselves. And what makes that descent possible is this union of kindness, compassion, and awareness. Without the, without the heart, going into the difficult places, it's terrifying. The, when, when the heart's engaged, when love is present, there's a soothing, there's a softening, there's, a, there's an ease. It's not pleasant, it's not easy, but there's a sense of possibility, the sense of, uh, it just makes it more doable. As Rumi said, keep your eyes on the bandaged places because that's where the light enters you. So, I remember working with a student here some years ago and she was feeling uh, like many people report, like I felt in my practice, rather than feeling this warm, fuzzy, glowy, young, lovey-dovey feeling in the heart, she felt hot, shut down, closed. And uh, she was a farmer, and the, 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 the image that came to her was this hard walnut in the center of her chest. That was, that was the feeling. And so um, we did some work around sensing into that and feeling it and visualizing it and allowing it, making space for that. That's, the, you know, that's where, Again, that's where the mindfulness and the matter come together. We first meet where we are with awareness, with acceptance. But we bring a kindness to it, a warmth if we can. And so the, slowly the tears came and um, she, you know, she was using the analogy of the tears being like rain soaking into this hardened nut with a thick shell. And so over the days she worked with that and over the days the, the steady 
waves of warmth and kindness and metta and presence. She felt the, 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 the tightness and the hardness softening and began, beginning to open. And at the end of the retreat, um, she reported feeling like the, the, um, the nut began to sprout, began to sprout a little seedling, a little sapling, a seedling. So that's, that's kind of what happens over time with the practice. We meet the difficult places. We meet them with kindness. We offer ourselves metta and presence. And things slowly shift. So I just want to close with saying a couple of things about uh, some of the obstacles that arise. Because often that's where we're hanging out. Anybody feel like they're hanging out with the obstacles to matter versus the actual practice of matter? Well, it's all the practice of matter. That's the point. The point is it brings up the obstacles. It brings up what gets in the way. It's a purification practice in that sense. So the far enemy, I really dislike that word. (laughs) It sounds so militaristic. Um, I would say that, yeah, the far obstacle to metta is... uh, the love that we know more commonly as love with strings, love with expectations, love with attachment, love with expectation in return. No, that's the near obstacle. Okay, let me go back to my Buddhist psychology. It's the near obstacle, the near enemy of uh, metta is, is this, the quality that feels like love, and is a, is a form of love, but it has strings. It has attachment, it has desires, it has expectation. Unlike metta, which is, as, uh, as a friend of mine puts it, love wants everything for you and wants nothing from you. Love wants everything for you, celebrates you, but has no, no pull for notice me, give me something back. If I love you, you'll love me more. So to see this quality as you practice, to see the shades of when you're offering metta to your friends or benefactor, whoever it is, is there some agenda like, well, if I give you this, maybe you'll be a better person. Maybe you'll like me more. Maybe you'll fix that issue that's really annoying to me. That's love with strings. It's not metta. And then the far enemy, the far obstacle, is hatred. And the most common form that I see of that is self-hatred, self-judgment, self-rejection, whether it's rejecting our body, our heart, our feelings, our thoughts, our whole being. And that's often what we encounter. Whether it's from our Judeo-Christian conditioning that says it's not okay to self-cherish. Or whether it's just from our history, where we've internalized the critic and we've internalized negative impressions and judgments from environment, family, culture, conditioning about our body, about who we are, about our gifts. And that becomes 
you know, we talk about not becoming a meta factory, but we're generally a judgment factory, you know, where we're generating a lot of negative self-talk. Anybody do that here? Yeah, it's very common. I'll read you my favorite cartoon on the subject called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic from Rhymes with Orange. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. This woman's looking in the mirror. Notice, examine your face closely in the mirror and noticing all the flaws. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. Very popular meditation pastime. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint, especially the people who share your last name. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And she's getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. She's thinking, don't patronize me. (laughs) And it says, lastly, resign yourself from believing that from now on this is how you'll always feel. So these are actually somewhat mild judgments compared to how cruel our critic can be. And, um, you know, I think meta and I work with a lot of people around the critic and I think it's one of the most powerful antidotes to the critic because it's using the same kind of neural pathways. It's using thought. So it's replacing the thought. There's, there's different kinds of ways to work with negative states and the, one of the ways the Buddha talked about was replacing unwholesome with wholesome. So, so we're replacing the unwholesome, in this case, judgments, with meta-statements. So every time you notice you're judging yourself or another person, just add a meta-sentence. Oh, God, that person's such a slacker. They're not meditating very well. Oh, and may you be happy. (laughs) Oh, God, that was the worst meditation you've ever done, and may I be peaceful. (laughs) God, you can't even do walking meditation. That's pathetic. Thank you. May I be happy. And you just see, one, you just see it's just a bunch of words. And two, why not, why not say a positive thing rather than a negative thing? And it does actually erode over time the influence of the critic. It's not the only thing that will erode it, but that's one way to uh, counteract it. But you want to be particularly aware with mindfulness of when you're making a judgment versus when you're making a discernment. So we can look back and say, wow, I was really distracted in that meditation. That's a discernment. Or that meditation was a load of crap. It's hopeless. I may as well give up now. That's a judgment. So noticing that voice, using mindfulness to disengage, and then keep coming back to the meta practice. So, um, a couple other points, and I'll close. And this, I'm responding to something that several people spoke to in the groups today. Um, and it often comes up in a retreat where um, there's a surprise at how solitary the practice is. You know, we're doing meta practice, which is about connection, it's about loving kindness, it's about loving and and everyone's looking at each other's socks. There's no eye contact, there's no smiling, everyone looks like a zombie, and um, it looks a little despairing for some people, especially if you're not used to the culture 
you know, the meditative culture, which in, in this in the silent tradition is very internal, very inward, and um, can look sort of dour on the outside because we're not engaging. You'll see at the end of the retreat, there's a whole explosion of life and vitality when we start talking, connecting, and you say, oh, this, they're, really, they're really not from the cuckoo's nest. They're actually <laughs> ah, from real life. Um, so uh, to not be put off by the exterior and to know, you know, as you're walking through the dining room, you're probably the recipient of a lot of loving kindness. Yeah, so what can look dour, and, and it's certainly not about looking dour. It's, it's, it's nothing to do with it whatsoever. You can be as light and bright as you like. Um, uh, but what's, what's important is what's happening on the inside, which is the cultivation of these qualities. Um, and actually, once we get familiar with the culture, that can actually be a profound way of connecting with people. And we often feel like we can sense into people's essence easier without knowing the story and the personality and the history when we just together in silence. And so maybe you'll feel into that. This is from Thomas Merton, who spent a lot of his time in silent monasteries. He said, it is in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers for what they are not for what they say. So maybe you can sense into that here. And lastly, I just want to speak, and i just speak a little of this, I'll probably speak more of it at, the, at the, in my next talk, um, about the potential of the practice. And I talked a little about that in respect to myself and seeing my own trajectory. And then, of course, there's many people who've developed this practice um, in very beautiful ways. Um, I think the Dalai Lama is, is an example, a shining example of someone who uh, walks his, when he says, my religion is kindness, he walks his talk. His, he embodies kindness. And that can sound like a nice phrase, and it may be sound even trite, but it's actually very profound if that is the essence of one's spiritual practice. It's a profound practice. And you can see how hard it is to practice that, to live that. Okay? Not easy. It takes deep work, deep digging, deep looking at what gets in the way. So please don't feel despairing when you're up against the obstacles because that's going to help you in freeing the heart. So I once read this story of a monk who was quite famous in Thailand for his meta practice. And he was um, bathing. He was staying out on the edge of a village. And there's two big ponds where the villagers uh, would bathe. And they said, don't go to this one. Go to this one on the other side of the village, this other one over there. There's crocodiles. And um, he decided, for whatever reason, to go bathe in this pond that was not considered safe. And so he's about chest deep in the pond, and um, he notices that there's a crocodile swimming towards him. Uh, And so he stays dead still, and the crocodile comes right up to him and puts his nose up against his chest. And all the while, he's doing meta practice. Because as Gina said yesterday, 
one of the ways, one of the places to practice metta is with fear. Right? And, and, and if you and notice, notice if you're anxious and afraid. And I, I've had a lot of anxiety in the last year for various reasons, and it's a profound balm to the nervous system. You know, just like if you have insomnia, to practice it at night, profoundly soothing to the nervous system. So this monk just stayed very still, I guess like a tree trunk, I don't know, and just did metta. And the crocodile stayed there for a while and then eventually backed away and swam away. Of course, the villagers got to hear about it and he was celebrated as this amazing monk. And, but he just put it down to his metta practice. And just That was what created the fearlessness and the sense of connection. And of course, animals f- sense much more keenly than we do fear and other qualities. So I doubt you'll be encountering any crocodiles. I doubt you'll be bathing in any pond anytime soon. You know, maybe come across some nipping turtles or something. But um, this practice, as simple as it feels, has tremendous depth. So let's take a moment to sit. So time now for walking and we'll come back 9 o'clock for some sitting and chanting. Thanks. <laughs>